This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, October 6th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, MedCenter creates access for reproductive health care. In new book, a journalist considers her path. Eyes to ears with Bella Eatman. And a mountain weather forecast. If you ask Grace Franklin, making reproductive health care accessible is just the right thing to do. Period. Um, but the, the, the more high-level, systems-level view of it, um, economically, socially, communities thrive more and um, are more successful economically when women have the right to choose whatever type of contraceptive they want, whether they want to have kids or not. Um, at the time that they want to, and not having cost be a barrier to these choices. Franklin is the public health director for San Miguel County. This year, public health granted the Telluride Regional Medical Center and the Uncompagre Medical Center grant funding to provide free reproductive and sexual health care to residents in the community. She says it builds off of public health programming that provides similar care free of charge to those 24 years and younger. Um, There is another subset, though, of folks that are not insured that are older than 24 um, and need to um, receive some kind of sexual health service that can be very cost prohibitive. If you didn't have insurance and you wanted to get, let's say, uh, an IUD, an intrauterine device um, that can protect you from pregnancy for 5 to 12 years, that can cost about $1,800 just for the device and um, the insertion um, because it has to be done by a a trained provider. And so that can be a huge upfront cost for folks. As 2023 winds to a close, and so does the current grant funding, Franklin says it's the ideal time to get your checkup, ask about birth control, and get an STI screening. They've been providing these services and offsetting costs all year. Um, This is really that call to action to individuals. If you've been putting off um, getting an STI test, if you've been putting off exploring different birth control options, now's the time to talk to your provider and get those services, especially if you don't have insurance, that'll cover it. And the services are extensive. Emily McGow, family nurse practitioner at the Med Center, gives a laundry list of care. Long-acting reversible contraception, which is um, short, we shorten it for as LARC, um, which includes IUDs or intrauterine devices, um, implants, depot shots. We have all of the different kinds of pills, patches, and rings for birth control that we can prescribe, Um, condoms, diaphragms. um, We can talk about family planning, family planning methods, um, child spacing, infertility, and referrals for infertility, sterilization for men and women, um, and then sexually transmitted infections, including HIV and AIDS. Um, and counseling for adolescents about any of those services and, um, and more. The grant also covers screenings for cervical cancer, including pap smears, and annual physicals if they cover family planning, cancer screenings, or birth control. McGow says a conversation about birth control can be just that. We can do a consultation that's just talking about the different options um, if you decide that you want to do like STI testing the same day, that's a possibility um, for one of the 
methods that requires um, a procedure like an IUD insertion or a Nexplanon or implant insertion, then those would require a follow-up visit. Outside the Med Center's grant funding for reproductive health care, McGow adds individuals can access care through Colorado's expanded emergency Medicaid program. People residing in Colorado who do not meet citizenship requirements but meet all other eligibility criteria for Health First Colorado became eligible for family planning services. The program has traditionally covered emergency care. Just last year, it expanded so that people who would otherwise qualify for that now can get routine preventive services, like an annual physical where we do a comprehensive patient history, a physical, lab tests, um, cervical cancer screening and prevention, and we can do contraceptive counseling. All these services, McGow and Franklin note, help to make the region a healthier and safer place to live. To me, it's a it really comes down to a fundamental right of women to be able to um, choose their future and have control over when they want to have children and if they want to have children and not let the you let the universe decide what what our future is going to be. It's like the tenet of our society if we can't um, give people reproductive rights and access, um, we just will not be as well off as we could be. For those needing or wanting to schedule an appointment for reproductive family planning or sexual health care, contact the Telluride Regional Medical Center by calling 970-728-3848 or going to telmed.org. Jane Ferguson spent over a decade covering conflict zones in the Middle East for publications ranging from CNN to Al Jazeera to PBS NewsHour and The New Yorker. Her work has followed war and unrest on the front lines, but a few years ago she moved to New York and took some time to write a memoir. That book, No Ordinary Assignment, was released this year. Ferguson's in Telluride this weekend, signing books and discussing the state of journalism today with the Original Thinkers Festival. Ferguson stopped by Kodo News to reflect on her path, and she begins by recalling her coming of age in Northern Ireland during a period of political unrest. That's right. I grew up in Northern Ireland, essentially the very, very last Protestant village before you get to the heartlands of South Armagh, um, right, right along the border with the South, with the Republic of Ireland. It was a particularly restive, a pretty violent period in Northern Ireland. We had, of course, the Troubles, where there was the uprising by the IRA against British rule. Of course, I look back now and I connect the dots when you write a memoir and you realise, gosh, you know, I spent most of my life covering insurgencies <laughs> and, and really trying to understand what makes people, uh, you know, what makes otherwise relatively ordinary people, bakers and farmers and cab drivers, what makes them commit acts of violence or to take up, you know, arms against a seemingly uh, enormous and immovable foe. Uh, I couldn't understand. And so uh, looking back, of course, I see myself as this little girl who was growing up on a farm and rural Northern Ireland and very much so aware that somewhere out there in the mountains, in the fields, in the hills were these IRA men who were sort of mysterious and yet well-known. And how did those initial experiences growing up in the Troubles shape your later pursuits, uh, your your work in war zones later in life? You know, any event like that, whether it's a war or an uprising or, uh, you know, even just a humanitarian disaster, but, but conflict in particular, it is experienced on a personal level. You know, 
people don't, you know, I go to a refugee camp in Lebanon with Syrian refugees there and, you know, they don't really talk geopolitics, you know, to a kid or a young person there, you know, dad is missing, um, you know, we can't go to school anymore and we moved here and now we live in a tent. This is how war is experienced um, on a granular level by each individual. And what was it like taking the initial dive into war reporting? It was hard. You know, I graduated. I didn't plan to go straight to the Middle East. I mean, I I, I knew I wanted to live and work abroad. Um, I really, really wanted to get, get, get out into the world. But I had presumed I'd take a job in London at a broadcaster and then I would I'd work my way up. And then one day I'd get my first field assignment. But the financial crisis happened in 2007, 8, 9. I graduated uh, 07 from college. And broadcasters were laying off hundreds of staff, thousands. In some cases, the newspapers were folding, radio stations going bust. It was really impossible to get a job. And so uh, I decided I would go to uh, Yemen to study Arabic. And I, I enrolled at a school there. Um, I was I was lucky enough. I had a, a relative or, well, a, a family friend, really, who was an honorary aunt, um, gifted me just enough money so that I could go to Yemen for four months and study. And I studied uh, Arabic at a school while I really tried to figure out what it was I wanted to do. And it was really after that that I decided I was going to have to go freelance. Um, and because, you know, none of the networks were, were, were hiring. They certainly weren't hiring me at the time. So you've traveled through war zones. You've already written a memoir at barely the age of 40. What's next? What excites you about journalism today? At this stage in my career, I'm pivoting into what I hope will be a different form of service. You know, I've worked in public broadcasting for so long and the greatest years of my career were in public service. The service I think I can best offer now is to try to build a new solution to what is essentially the collapsing business model of news, um, certainly of broadcast news. I really want to roll my sleeves up and get involved. And so I'm sort of talking to uh, people in tech, trying to see how we can envisage a new business model that, you know, may not involve networks anymore, but certainly keeps journalists working in the field. Right now I'm teaching at, at uh Princeton University just for the fall semester as a guest professor, which I love, um, and being around the, you know, young, bright, brilliant, curious minds. So that's really helping me shape what it is I want to do, um, just being around them. All right. Jane Ferguson, thank you so much for taking the time to stop by Kodo today. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. <laughs> that was Jane Ferguson discussing her work. Ferguson's in town for the original Thinkers Festival. She'll be signing books at Between the Covers Bookstore tomorrow, October 7th, from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Telluride High School's Bella Eatman is going back to the painted canvas this week on Eyes to Ears and leaning into the somber. Have a listen. Good evening, everybody. My name is Bella Eatman, your host, and this is Eyes to Ears, a Kodo segment where I visit local art galleries to find paintings to describe to you. As of late, I have been describing to you many other kinds of art pieces that haven't been painted, which we are 
we're going back to the normal, so don't you worry about that. This Tuesday, while every other kid was celebrating their day away from school for parent-teacher conferences, I decided to visit the Slate Gray Art Gallery. And at the very end of the art gallery was a misty sort of painting called Across the Water by Silvia Benitez. We watch from above a muddy ground lake with hints of orange and red. The edge of the water is bordered midway through the canvas with light brown dirt and dead grass. The ground dips just behind the black bramble before we observe the mauve and tan valley beyond. Lazy tan hills lie before muted pink cloud-filled skies with a dark muted teal above the stirring rumbling clouds. I liked its sort of moody nature when it came to the colors. A lot of it wouldn't be described as gray, but it would be dipping just a little bit into that sort of nar narrative of somberness, I guess you could say. And for this one, you, you did have to look a little closer just to see the clouds and the mounds and everything. I mean, for all we know, the black bramble wasn't probably actually bramble, but that's what I liked to think about it. It looks like the beginning of a storm, like you're sitting at the edge of this lake and you see, and see the clouds roll in. There's a somber feeling to it. There's, it's very, it feels sad, but I somehow like that sadness. A lot of people don't like the rain. Narratively, people like sunshine for it provokes happiness, energy. But some of us are starting to learn that we like rain a little bit more somehow because the rain is accepting of whether or not you're feeling up to something. In fact, it kind, kind of encourages you to procrastinate, to take a day off. It encourages you to, uh, to look at things in a different light, to appreciate different kinds of beauty that usually aren't there, unless if you're in Ireland. But this has been Eyes to Ears on Kodo. My name is Bella Eatman and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. With temps falling, the season of outdoor performances is coming to an end. But that won't stop the musical offerings in the Box Canyon. The Sheridan Arts Foundation has announced its winter lineup, which features a crew of jam band favorites, the return of Comedy Fest, and a crop of ski films to warm the spirit. The motet, infamous string dusters, Mo, and leftover salmon will all be returning to the Opera House stage in the early months of 2024. Before the new year, ski films from Warren Miller and Teton Gravity Research come to town in December. And this month, October 19th through the 22nd, the Not So Young People's Theater will perform Meet Me in St. Louis. Tickets for winter season events, with a few exceptions, went on sale today, Friday the 6th at noon. Get yours and see the full offerings at SheridanOperaHouse.com.
A proposed major solar development outside the town of Norwood made waves this spring, resulting in a packed community meeting and significant community resistance. The San Miguel Board of County Commissioners responded by putting a pause on all large-scale utility applications in order to update county regulations around solar development. After taking a hard look at its land use code, the county is opening up the process to the public and seeking input. It will hold an open house at the Lone Cone Library next Tuesday, October 10th, from 5 to 7 p.m. to hear comments. Commissioner Lance Waring points out there are currently no specific regulations around commercial solar development in the county's land use code, and while renewable energy is a county priority, Waring says development must be balanced with, quote, public health, safety, and welfare. No registration is needed for the October 10th event. Just drop in. Find more information at sanmiguelcountyco.gov. State lawmakers are moving forward with a set of five transportation reforms. Three of the measures would dedicate funding to pedestrian safety infrastructure, improve car safety for child passengers, and strengthen railroad safety. Others would develop a statewide transit pass, create a public transit tax credit, and crack down on predatory towing practices. The policy proposals were approved by the Transportation Legislation Review Committee last week. They'll be introduced as bills during next year's legislative session. A community group in White Mesa, Utah, on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation, is holding its annual spiritual walk and rally on Saturday to protest the nearby uranium mill. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Chris Clements of KSJD reports. The White Mesa Uranium Mill, operated by the mining company Energy Fuels Resources, is the only one of its kind still operating in the United States. The mill is part of a legacy of uranium mining in Four Corners tribal communities, many of which are still dealing with the impacts of widespread environmental contamination as the result of mining activity. Scott Clough is the Environmental Programs Director for the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. He says he has concerns that the state of Utah's regulation of groundwater usage by the uranium mill is too lax and has led to the degradation and contamination of the Burrow Canyon aquifer underneath White Mesa. And that facility is built on their homeland. It's built on their ancestors' graves, something that we hear about often, the impacts on the cultural resources out there. And we have people that have lived on White Mesa for this whole time. They want to be there in a millennium. You know, all all the regulators need to understand that um, we're going to continue with standing strong on our positions here and um, and supporting the people in White Mesa on this issue. Clo says Energy Fuels has applied to renew its groundwater discharge permit with the Utah Division of Waste Management and Radiation Control and that a decision whether or not to renew will likely be made sometime this winter. The walk on Saturday will start at 11 a.m. at the White Mesa Recreation Center and will end at the uranium mill site. For KSJD, I'm Chris Clements. Band Book Week runs through Saturday, October 7th, and authors, booksellers, and readers are using it as an opportunity to speak out about the growing efforts to ban books in schools and public libraries. Carmen Maria Machado's book, In the Dream House, appeared on high school classes' recommended reading lists and was subsequently targeted by book-banning efforts. Machado spoke about the haunting reality of book bans in America today, at the University of Utah's Tanner Humanities Center in Salt Lake during Band Book Week. 
Back in 2021, Machado also wrote an op-ed for the New York Times entitled, Banning My Book Won't Protect Your Child. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, she spoke with KRCL's Nick Burns. I mean, I've always been interested in book bannings ever since I was a kid. I mean, I was that kid who they would make, you know, banned book week displays at the library, and I was all over that display every year. Um, So it's kind of strange to have grown up and become an adult and written books and then also be at the, you know, receiving, on the receiving end of these book bans. Um, And when it sort of first started, I I remember my first sort of reaction to it was, was laughter, which I know sounds kind of strange, but during COVID, I received a message from a fan who was in Texas who said, um, the school board that my, my kid, you know, the school that my kid goes to, the school board meeting was last night. Somebody, um, I, I I know we're on the radio, I can't say what it was, but someone brought an object to the um to the meeting that is referenced in one of your books and was like waving it around while like furiously reading sections of your memoir um and saying that we should not have this book um on like an assigned reading list the school had. And I watched and there, and there was a video of it. And so I watched this very silly video and was laughing because I was like, oh, this is so ludicrous, it's so silly. And then as this sort of woman kept speaking, she started talking about, you know, how (laughs) access to a book like mine sort of constituted grooming on the part of professors. And I remember like just my like mid laugh, just like stopping because it was so sort of horrible. Um, And then the longer I've sort of witnessed it and watched it happen in this like sort of current wave of censorship that we're experiencing in the United States, you know, I've just been, it's so sort of unrelentingly grim. And I think as horrifying as like any horror novel that any writer could possibly construct, um, this idea that we're sort of allowing these um, radical figures to step in and intervene and override educators and sort of bring their conservative agenda to schools in the US. It's really devastating. It's really upsetting. You're a writer. The whole point is to share what you have to say. But, you know, speaking of this Austin issue, there is the high school in Austin where they wanted to ban in the dream house. But at Vandegrift High School, the students started a banned book club and they read your book. So it seems to me for all this talk, and yes, I do agree it's horrible and we can talk more about that. But, you know, telling a teenager don't do this is kind of like putting a speed limit on the highway. You're just inviting kids to break it. So these kids not only formed a book club, they read your book. So that's it's true that it does incentivize. Like I said, when I was a kid, you know, I was like, give me the banned books. But I do, I do think that that does. We can't forget that. First of all, there are kids for whom this actually will cut off access to texts, whether it's sort of an issue of class or money um, or just an issue of like, you know, what kind of resources are available to them. So even things like, you know, libraries having books or like, you know, for a while, like my publisher sent a lot of copies of my book to various sort of queer spaces um, that were in the area when all this started. But like you still do like like the act of banning books does, in fact, affect not just authors, but also affects students who, for some reason, you know, can't access them. And that includes students who would benefit from reading someone's perspective that's not their own and also students who share that identity. So, like, you know, I remember thinking a lot about, like, the queer kids in Texas who would have had access to a book that suddenly do not and how devastating that would be. Um, And so it is just such a, 
it's true that like, right, you you are incentivizing a certain kind of reader to be like, oh, it's banned? Like, what's that about? (laughs) But it does also create access and barriers to access, obviously, is very serious. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low in the mid-30s. Saturday should be sunny during the day and clear at night with a high around 65 degrees and a low around 40. Sunday calls for sunny skies with a high in the mid-60s. Sunday night should be clear with a low around 35. This has been the news for Friday, October 6th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hello. My name is Rick Silverman. In a sharp-elbowed world of political uncertainties, it is rare to have a chance to wholeheartedly embrace a candidate who you know will bring so much to the dance. If the community could have digitally created an ideal member of the R1 school board, that figure would, if you value wit, kindness, and integrity, look a lot like David Lavender. David, who has six generations of family in the Telluride region, just retired from teaching at Telluride High School. It is the last of many public schools and private where he has taught, carving out a unique identity as gifted, passionate, and a teacher adored by his peers, students, and even administrators. Not easily characterized, David has simply been the kind of teacher that you dreamed of having from kindergarten to the iviest college or university. He knows his students, their world and ours, and the hurdles of funding and navigating the bureaucratic web of American public education. In my more than 50 years watching and sometimes participating in our local school system, no teacher has enjoyed the respect of David, nor more substantively benefited his students. My own kids and their classmates universally declared him as their all-time favorite teacher, a man of such easy warmth that they still seek out his company now many years after having left our local system. Lavender, as most of his students call him, was regarded not just as a master teacher, a title wholly endorsed by his fellow faculty, but as an accessible, knowing guy who was adept at giving them a love of literature and the craft of writing as he was at giving them a deep understanding of the world they would be entering. And where one might reasonably be suspicious of a retired teacher as a school board member, fearful that he or she might simply be a one-note advocate for teachers, David genuinely sees education and its future challenges broadly. Finance, AI, varying language and economic realities, even hormones, and how to improve teaching and learning are simply, along with a deep love of literature and his wife, kids, and grandchildren, things he thinks about constantly. David and his wife, Karen, still live in an old family cabin on Hastings Mesa. He cuts his own firewood, Climbs up a hill just across the road with his dogs for his snowboard turns on a board so ancient you could likely count the tree rings. He and Karen have for years done extraordinary things to get THS graduates entry and solicit unrivaled funding for those students' next phase of life. David is the embodiment of what a community might ideally choose to be a continuing force in the development of our kids and the careful, frugal, high-expectation nurturing of their school system. He is also a representation of a community that knows the value of public participation and of bringing the best and brightest to our most important decision-making tables. I love this man's character, 
respect his battle-tested intellect and grit, and urge you to ensure his voice is part of Telluride's educational dialogue. Thanks. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.